Thanks for joining us at Reveal, a Jesus-centered community. To learn more about us and what's going on, check us out on the web at www.revealvineyard.com. We hope in the minutes to come, you're able to find God, find others, and find yourself. Thanks again for listening. Well, we are on week two of our current series, and we started last week with a quote from Anne Rice, arguably one of the more famous authors of our time, and walked away from faith around 18 years old, and then later in life she had a a faith awakening uh, where she said this. I read it to you last week. I'll, I'll read it to you again. After several years of pondering and searching, the great gift of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ as Savior came back to me on a December afternoon. And then about 10 years, 10, 11 years after her faith uh, awakening, she shocked the Christian community when she said this, today I quit being a Christian. I remain committed to Christ as always, but not to being, quote, Christian or to being part of Christianity. It's simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. For 10 years I've tried, I've failed, I'm an outsider, my conscious will allow nothing else. Years later, or shortly after, she clarified her statement. She said, look, my faith in Christ is central to my life. My conversion from a pessimistic atheist lost in a world I didn't understand to an optimistic believer in a universe created and sustained by a loving God is crucial to me. But following Christ does not mean following his followers. Christ is infinitely more important than Christianity and always will be, no matter what Christianity is, has been, or might even become. If you were with us last week, we uh, kicked off a little session that I called uh, Confessions of a Pastor, a little intimate session just between us, where I told you that I, I totally understand what Anne is saying. I confess to you that I get it, that, that, that there are many things that have attached themselves to Christianity that I try to distance myself from. That there, there, there are parts of the Christian culture that, that are just not who I am. I mean, Jesus, yes, but sometimes Christianity, I look at it and I think, what is happening right now to the label, to the term of Christian? I, I've kind of developed an aversion of sorts to the term. That's why if someone asks me, am I a Christian? I almost want to qualify the question by saying, well, what do you mean by Christian? How do you define Christian? Because today, Christian means so many different things to so many different people. Someone sent me a link last week of um, the Kardashian girls who were being interviewed by one of the late night talk show hosts, and they were talking about Kanye's new church. And Kanye has a church where they just kind of go out into the country, out in the field somewhere, and they just kind of dance around and stuff. And she said, and, the, and they asked, well, do you pray? He's like, no, we don't pray. There's no sermon. We don't pray. We don't read the Bible. And then they said, but we're Christian. And it just kind of reminded me, it's like, well, anything today, I guess, can be Christian. And so who gets to define Christian? And if your answer is, well, the Bible defines Christian, we talked about it last week, we said, well, you might be surprised that Christian is rarely even used in the Bible. I mean, Christian was not a label given to um, the followers of Jesus by Jesus, Christian was not a label that the followers of Jesus used to describe themselves. Christian was a term used by outsiders to kind of label this small Jewish knockoff religion. 
In other words, they did what the majority always does. The majority always looks at the minority and, and they look at people who, who, who live the same, act the same, uh, believe the same, maybe dress the same, uh, talk the same, and they label them like redneck, right? You might be a redneck if your school fight song was dueling banjos. Right? You just might. Not, not good? Some of, uh, are, are we all rednecks? Is that what it is? You might be a redneck if taking out the trash means taking your husband out for dinner. Hmm? Maybe that one. Oh, see, that one you like. Ah, nice. Nice. Okay. All right. I see where we're going. Christian was a label used by outsiders trying to figure out what do we do with this group of Jesus followers that are always talking about Christ. Right? We worship Christ, the teachings of Christ, the return of Christ. And so someone said, well, let's call them Christians, Christians, little Christs. And eventually the term stuck, but it really wasn't a term of endearment. It was kind of like a a flip of the hand by the powers that be to kind of label this new movement. But Jesus never used the term. Jesus did have a term that he used. He branded his followers, but something with far more clarity and far more weight. He used the term disciple. He said, if you follow me, you are my disciple. And we talked last week, a disciple is a learner, a follower, an apprentice, or a pupil. A disciple is someone who is trying to become like the person they are following. A disciple is someone who runs their life through the teachings and the life of their master. So they modeled their life after Jesus. Questions like, well, Jesus, what do you think about this? Because what you think is what I want to think. How would you handle this situation? Because how you handle it is how I want to handle it. What would you do if you were me? Because what you do is what I want to do. That's what a disciple is, someone who models their life after the person that they are following. And so Jesus called his followers his disciples. You're my pupils. You're learning from me. You're modeling your life after my life and after my teachings. And not only did he call his followers disciples... But then he took it a step further and he said, if you are my disciples, here's his parting words before he ascends into heaven. He says, if you are my disciples, then I want you to make more disciples, right? It's the great commission. Therefore, go and make disciples. That means go and influence people for the cause of Christ. Go and make more pupils. Go and make more students. Go and make more people who are aligning themselves with me. And here's the crazy part. The early church took this commandment and their position as disciples so serious that they changed the world. Now, what do, what do I mean by that? Let's unpack that a little bit. The prevailing influence over the world at this time was the Roman Empire. Rome was everywhere. Uh, the Roman world was uh, a brutal, uh, generally indifferent towards suffering. Sympathy and mercy was seen as a weakness. Uh, they had a thirst for blood. Um, the Roman religious scene was, was largely pagan. Part of that was, was the state religion or the imperial cult because uh, the emperors were seen as deities. They were seen as divine on his death. Julius Caesar was said to go up into heaven. There was a comet that passed through. This is all history. Comet passed over the sky uh, reportedly, and it was said that this is the soul of Julius going up into heaven to take his place among the gods. Uh, we know this because of Roman uh, writings and culture uh, and coins that we have. I've showed you this before. Here's a coin from uh, Caesar Augustus, and on the back is Divus Julius, which is Julius the Divine, or the Divine Julius. And, and this is what was seen, that, that the emperors were gods. They were worshipped. Later, uh, Caesar Augustus actually had them commission um, 
uh, places of worship uh, throughout certain parts of Asia Minor still stand today, and these were temples of worship, and this was kind of the imperial cult, uh, uh, the divine uh, Julius, the divine Caesars is, is, is what it was known as. Now in 64 AD, um, the emperor Nero burned the city of Rome. We talked a little bit about it last week. Burned the city of Rome and he needed a scapegoat and so he blamed the Christians and he sent his henchmen out to start rounding up Christians to put them on trial. And by trial, we mean torture of Nero's circus. It was the site of the first organized state-sponsored persecution of Christians. Here's what Tacitus, a Roman uh, historian, writes about it. It says, consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pled guilty. Now, they pled guilty by, you know, threat. Then upon their information, an an, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city, but here's the big thing, as of hatred against mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths, covered in skins of beasts. They were torn by dogs and perished. Uh, They were nailed to crosses or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Now, use your imagination. You are a disciple of Jesus, 64, 65 AD. And then you hear that Nero has blamed the burning of Rome on you and your brothers and sisters, this this small group of followers of Jesus. And you would do what any of us would do. You would gather your belongings, you would get your children, and you would take what you could carry, and you would get out under the cover of night, and you would lay low, bounce from house to house, just trying to preserve life because Nero was coming after you and your family to put you to death. Now imagine if we could go back in time, and we could speak with one of these families that was on the run packed up everything, left their home, and and they're on the run. Perhaps we find them hiding in a barn, rationing water, living off of scraps of food, doing their best to keep their children quiet, to not give away their location. Imagine if we could come up to them, their children hungry, dirty, afraid, left everything that was familiar, and now they're on the lam, they're on the run. Imagine if we could go up to this frightened family with all that they know about Roman culture, the worship of Caesar, Rome was everywhere. Imagine if we could go up to this frightened family and tell them that in 300 years, which historically speaking is a very short amount of time, imagine if we could go up to this family and say in 300 years, the city of Rome, the very city where Nero lives, the city that ordered your death, right? In 300 years, the city of Rome Rome will be adorned with crosses, that there will be crosses on buildings and on roadways and, 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 and everywhere there will be crosses. Not because there are crucifixions taking place, but there will be crosses to commemorate, to remember, to pay homage to one cross. The cross of Jesus Christ, the one that you serve. Imagine if we could go back in time and talk to this family who's on the run, Nero's circus, Christians being put to death, and we could tell them that in 300 years, which is a short amount of time, that, 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 that no one will worship Caesar ever again. Imagine what it would be like. Imagine it, t- telling them this, 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 little, uh, this little band of followers 
to, to tell them this little group of disciples that part of what you, what you are a part of will one day expand and will jump borders and will jump the pond and that your little discipleship group will expand to parts of the world that you've never even heard of and you can't even imagine exists. Imagine their confusion at hearing that a day will come when no one will worship Caesar, that people will pay good money to come and look at the place where Nero persecuted Christians, but in its place, instead of being the, 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 the circus of death, in its place there will actually be a cathedral in honor of Peter who gave his life here. Imagine what they would have thought that one day there will be a cross that will stand at the emperor's gate. They would have looked at you and said, What have you been drinking, man? Because Rome is everything, and Caesar is everywhere, and they would have looked at you and said, you're crazy. What would it have been like to say there will be crosses in this city one day more than any other city in the world, and they won't be because of new crucifixions that are coming. They will be a reflection of one crucifixion of the Jesus that you serve. They would have said, you are crazy, but that's exactly what happened. That's exactly the turn that took place. How do you think it happened? How do you think this occurred? Well, let me tell you how it didn't occur. It didn't occur because the followers of Jesus decided to be Christian. I mean, whatever that means, right? It didn't happen because they just decided to be part of a numerous, one of many religious sects, whatever that means. It happened because his disciples decided not to lower themselves simply to the label of Christian or just another religion of its day. It happened because the early followers of Jesus aligned their lives with his lives and slowly over time it changed the world. And so today I want to read to you the message that started the revolution that changed the world. Jesus was just baptized by John the Baptist. He has his wilderness experience. Scripture then says he goes through Galilee and he's healing people. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God. Uh, Demons are subject to his command. He's casting out demons. And then Scripture tells us that a large crowd begins to follow him, not just from the area of Galilee, but it says that there are multiple cities, an entire region that is coming out following Jesus because he's the greatest show on earth and everyone wants a ticket. And so everyone now is following Jesus. So catch the scene. Crowds coming, following Jesus wherever he goes, watching the miracles, seeing what is happening. And, 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 and here is his ch- chance to amass all kinds of followers. And so the, the, the Jewish crowd that was following him, they were hoping that Jesus would be their deliverer, the long-awaited Messiah. They were looking for the Messiah, the deliverer, the anointed one that would free them from Roman oppression. And so as they're watching the miracles and demons subject to his name, they're thinking, this guy has to be the one. And they're ready for a freedom cry, a rally cry. They're ready for Jesus in his first public address to say, hey, you got to fight for your right. You know what's coming next, don't you? No, I'm not going to do it on Mother's Day. All right, so some of you are like, I, I, don't, I, don't, I didn't get it. I didn't get it. That's all right. Uh, if you're Jesus, what do you say at your first public speaking address? Right? All the crowd is following him. How do you turn the curious to the committed? Jesus, here's your chance to amass followers for this new movement that's going to change the world. And here's what Jesus says, Matthew 5. 
And now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountainside and he sat down and his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. You can almost feel the anticipation, right? This is the moment we've been waiting for. This is the moment that we throw off Roman oppression. This is the moment that freedom comes to us. And so Jesus prepares his sermon. This is the foundation for his movement laying the groundwork, introducing a new value system for those people that would be his disciples, new behaviors for those who would be his disciples and turn the world upside down. Here's what Jesus said, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Yeah, that's exactly how the crowd responded. They're like, wait, 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 wait. wait. Did he say blessed are the poor in spirit? I don't feel blessed right now. And then he continued, and he said, blessed are those who mourn. And you can almost see someone in the back saying, I'm, I'm sorry, we're, we're way in the back. Did he say blessed are those who mourn? Because I, I couldn't quite understand what, 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 what he said. And Jesus continues, he said, blessed are the meek. And someone, did he just say meek? Did he say that we're blessed if we're meek, as in blessed are the humble, blessed are the gentle? Is this guy serious? I mean, look where meekness has gotten us. Right? Under Roman oppression. Matthew's like, um, are you sure you want this written down? Because we can, we can stop right now, right? Verse 6, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and blessed are the merciful. And you can almost hear the crowd saying, we're through with mercy. Right? We want to revolt. We want, we're angry. And then Jesus continues, blessed are the pure in heart, and blessed are the peacemakers. This is where they're like, no. Nah. No, no. I don't want peace, right? I want a revolution. I want a revolt. I want anger. I want violence. I want Caesar's head to roll. This isn't how you retake a nation by being peacemakers. Verse 10, Jesus says, Blessed are those who who are persecuted because of righteousness. And blessed are you when people insult you. That had to go over well. And persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And then Jesus finishes the sermon by saying, Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. Like, what did we just sign up for? I could almost say something. Let me get this straight. Jesus, you had an eternity to prepare for this sermon, and this is what you came up with. This was the best you had. And I could almost see someone saying, So let me get this straight. If we follow you, if we sign on the dotted line and become your disciples, we are poor, mourning, sad, meek, righteous, merciful, pure, insulted, persecuted people who are waiting for a future reward in heaven. Jesus is like, yes. And they're like, where do I sign up for that? That is awesome. And yet here is Jesus laying the ground rules of this is what it looks. Everything that you will do as my disciples will be countercultural to what you think you knew. If I was Jesus' PR person, I'd be like, hey, are you sure this is what you want on the brochure? Because there are better things that we can sell beside what you just, you know, what you just said. And then Jesus simplifies it, verse 11. He says, hey, if you're going to follow me, if you're my disciples, then understand something, that you are the salt of the earth. And you know what salt is. Salt is a preservative. A preservative is a substance added to prevent decomposition. Without preservatives, listen, without preservatives, you know what happens. Things rot and things spoil and things stink. And so listen carefully what Jesus is saying. 
My disciples, those who align their lives with me, are the preservatives of this world. And he says this under a Roman culture that was not known for mercy, not known for kindness, had a bloodlust for for violence, and and women uh, had very little rights. And the way they treated children and the way they treated uh, people with special needs. And among this, Jesus says, you are the preservative of culture. You are the preservatives of this world. Look at the rest of verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And so Jesus gathers this crowd among them. And he says, without you, or if you lose your way, or for the purposes of this sermon, we could say, if you simply become a Christian, whatever that means, culture is going to stink. Your family is going to stink. Your workplace is going to rot. Your ball team is going to stink. He's saying, look, if you're my disciples, you are the preservative. You're the ingredient added to wherever you're at to kind of be pulling people towards something better. And then he goes on with this. He says, not only are you the salt of the earth, verse 14, he says, but you are the light of the world. If you're my disciples, you are the light of the world. You're not only salt, but you're light. You're not only a preservative, but you light up the darkness, that you illuminate the night, that you actually push back the darkness. He says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Now remember, Jesus is laying this foundation of what it looks like to be his disciples, to be a student or a follower. And he says, just as a city built on a hill cannot be hidden, he says, so let it be with my disciples that if I am in you, you cannot be hidden. That you will stand out wherever you are if you are my disciples. Just as a city on a hill cannot be hidden, you will not be able to be hidden in your family, in your workplace, in your church, in your culture, in your society. You will stand out as being just a little bit different. He goes on, verse 15, he says, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. In other words, why would you go through all of the hassle to light the lamp just to put it under a bowl? Your salt and your light. Here's what Jesus is saying. My disciples will be people of influence. My disciples will be people of influence. They are the salt, the preservative of the world, of the earth, and they are a light in the darkness. See, influence is not reserved for just a select few. If you're sucking air and you're a disciple of Jesus, you are a person of influence. You are salt and you are light. Look how Jesus continues. He says, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. Now catch the the, the picture Jesus is painting. There's a house that is in darkness, there is an oil lamp, and there are various locations where the oil lamp can be placed. It can be placed presumably on the floor in the corner where it gives us very little light. Maybe someone comes along and they question its purpose and they put a shade or a bowl over it and the house remains in darkness. But then he says, but then there's a second option. In this same house, there is a lampstand and if people will put the lamp on the lampstand, it will illuminate the darkness. See, what comes with the decision of where you place the lamp is this question. Should the light from the lamp be minimized? Or should the light from the lamp be maximized? Now, this is all a metaphor for our lives. And here's what Jesus is asking you. 
Will the light from your life be minimized? Or will the light from your life be maximized? See, it's the same house, the same darkness, it's the same lamp. The only thing that changed is someone's decision to maximize the potential of the light. And so Jesus says to us, will you maximize your light potential? See, you can be a light that hides in the corner of culture, under a bowl, and no one ever knows that light exists. Or you can be a lamp that is placed on a lampstand and it illuminates the darkness and everyone can participate and benefits from the light. See, the implications of his story are profound. He's telling the crowd that darkness is encroaching all around us. And it seems like every generation seems to have increasing amounts of depravity and violence and evil and danger. And yet Jesus says, in spite of this, Jesus says, if you are my disciple, then you are the salt of the earth and you are like a lamp that can push back the darkness. You are salt and you are light. And placement is everything. Here's what he wraps this up. He says, in the same way, in other words, Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, he says, in the same way that the lamp gives light to the house, in the same way, he says this, let your light shine before others that they may see your church attendance and say, what a great guy. Right? That's what he says, right? Because it's all about church attendance, right? That's what Jesus was getting at. That's Christian. No, 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 that's not what he says. Look what he says. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Here's what Jesus is saying. Burn in such a way that people see God in you. Burn in such a way that people cannot help but see the God that lives in you. Live in such a way that people see the Father in you. Live in such a way that culture looks at you and says, what's, what's different about this person? Who's that generous? And who's that kind? And who's that loving? And who's that forgiving? And who's that patient? Nobody. Jesus is saying, be a dot connector. Connect the dots between your life and the God that you serve. See, the world was changed. Not because followers of Jesus decided to be Christian and just be part of a religious movement but because they were disciples, because they aligned their lives with the teaching of Jesus. Hey, don't settle for being a Christian. I'm not saying we throw out the term. I am suggesting we put the Christ back in Christian. Don't settle for just being a Christian. Be a life preserver. Be a light in darkness because you are a city on a hill. You are a disciple of Jesus. And the world needs you. And if you lose your saltiness, there are no preservatives, no preservatives left, is what Jesus is saying. That this is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Stand with me, will you please? On your way out, make sure you grab a photo, grab some chocolate. If you would like me to be in your family photo, I can do that for a fee. I'm joking. Let's pray. Lord, it's a good word that you gave us today through Scripture. Uh, a lot of imagery, uh, a lot of things for us to wrestle with. And it's easy for us to just kind of fall into the, the habit and the, the patterns of religion and just kind of, yeah, I'm a Christian. I got my ticket for a life after this life. But you call us to so much more. There's so much more meaning and so much more purpose that you're calling us to. 
And so we want to embrace that today. We want to embrace being salt and light. We want to embrace being world changers, culture changers. We want to embrace being salt and light in our families and at our workplace. And today, Holy Spirit, I would pray that you would speak to each person right now. And however you do this, would you just invite the Holy Spirit to come and speak to you? And would you be open to the Holy Spirit revealing the place where you need to be salt and light? Maybe it's going to be a person's name that's going to come to your mind. Maybe it'll be an image that flashes in your mind. Maybe it may be a phrase. But I I trust the Holy Spirit is giving you an image, a person, a place where you need to be salt and you need to be light. Now, how will you respond to that? So you will not be salt. We will not be light under our own effort of just saying, I'm going to try harder. It starts by aligning our lives with Jesus. And as we do that, he increases the candle power. He increases our saltiness, our flavor. Lord, would we step into being salt and light? Would we be more than just the title of Christian, which means so much in our culture today? It can mean just about anything. But let us be disciples of Jesus, and let us live in such a way that people would see our lifestyles, and they would glorify you, that we would be dot connectors and point them to Jesus. Would you give us the grace to step into the moment that you just revealed to each one of us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, happy Mother's Day. I truly hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Be blessed. Uh, Hey, let's let the ladies have a nap today undisturbed, all right? God bless you. God, we exalt your name, Lord, from the north, the south, and the east, and the west. Of the earth to magnify it.